Hello and welcome. You're listening to Writers Aloud, a podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. Hello and welcome to episode 414 of Writers Aloud. In this episode, Ian Ayres speaks with Anne Morgan about the therapeutic power of storytelling, football's role in male expression, learning to write in your own voice, and discovering the joys of Shakespeare. Ian Ayres never meant to be a writer, but when the voice of a story started speaking in his head, he felt compelled to write it down. There followed many more stories, and a trilogy of novels called Shining Like Rainbows, as well as a novella. Now a teacher of creative writing, Ian started off by telling me more about where it all began. I suppose real writing didn't start for me till I was 37, maybe a little bit older than that. I vaguely remember winning a short story competition when I was about nine. It was a Wombles competition. And my mum tells me about it, I don't remember anything about it. She might be making me making up to make me feel better, but that might have been my first sort of go at writing. Yeah. Okay. And when you were 37, what happened? Really odd. I'm, I'm, I'd never seen myself as a writer. I still sort of don't in a lot of ways. But I was coming back from Tesco's with my daughter, who I don't know how she was, but she was old enough to be in a pushchair. And I had this voice come into my head. And it was sort of telling me a story, but it was really nasty. It was uh, sweary and it was quite violent. And I'd worked in mental health for 25 years, so I knew it was nothing to worry about. I knew there was, there was a distinction there. And I went home and my first instinct was to write it down, partly just to get rid of it. And I thought, I've got this. it turned into a short story. And I thought, what do you do with this? What do you do with stories? And the internet was sort of... I don't know how long it had been about for, but I'm not a technology sort, but I found a writing site on the internet where people were putting on their stories. So I thought I'd put that on. A couple of hours later, I got a, an email from someone from the site saying that they that they moonlight on the site as a publisher. They don't say they're a publisher when they're on the site, but that's what they are. Um, and he said, can I publish your story? And I said, yeah. And that's pretty much where it started, I suppose, sort of officially. Wow. As a voice, a voices, are all your stories voices like that? Is that how it always goes? It's either voices or pictures. It, it always seems to be sort of an internal stimulus rather than seeing something in the street or hear, overhearing someone, you know, like, and then sort of extending, expanding on that to make a story. It's always seems to be at the moment an internal stimulus, and I don't know why. Yeah. It's really interesting, that, that idea of voice, because something that really strikes me in your writing and that I was really impressed with in your, your book, uh, Abide With Me, which I, I really enjoyed, is rhythm, the sense mm. of rhythm. There's really powerful rhythm in, in the words and, and the way it is like a voice talking the whole mm. time. I mean, how do you get that effect? Is that just something that, that comes to you? Hone it? How do you, how do you achieve that? I play guitar as well, I used to teach guitar, so I suppose I'm quite musical in, in some sense. So I've always seen writing as music, as rhythm, um, and speech especially as rhythm. So when I write in the first person, when I'm editing, I read it out, and it's like something feels like off-key, or it's, it's a wrong note, and that will be a word I then take out, then I read it again, and it sounds right. So I guess I write with my ears as much as anything else. So perhaps where that's where the rhythm might come from. 
Yeah. There's also a really strong sense of mission in your writing. Like at the start mm. of your, um, I don't know if it's at the start of the trilogy mm. as well as at the start of Abide With Me, but you say um, you dedicate it uh, to anyone who's ever been lost, felt lost. Yeah. And there's a real sense that this book is, is a kind of reaching out, a, a sense of hand-holding. I mean, it, it's funny because I, I get very choked up very easily and I've sort of got tears in my eyes just thinking about those words. I think for those who ever felt lost or the, the day too long or the night too long, I think. And, and I mean, I, I'm, I'm a trained counsellor as well, so I've been with a lot of people in some very dark places. And it's only when I started writing, totally unconsciously realised I was writing about my own dark places. Um, and I realised I was the one that was, had been lost quite often in my life. And the characters in the books, for me, they were so real that whatever happened to them, I felt, you know, so... I mean, you talk about John Sisson's almost... He's almost like an alter ego sometimes. You yeah. write in the introduction to the trilogy mm. about how John was sort of using your contentment as a time to test his his, his oh. sadness or his, his real boundaries in, in, in some ways. Oh, and it really was. I mean, all three books are hugely autobiographical, although none of them were written with that in mind. Absolutely none of it. It's only when I look back... Then I realised, well, that was me. I like, he's speaking the words that I could never say. I never was a time in one of the books where he was completely stuck. At the same sort of time in my life that I was stuck. And this is going to sound a little bit odd, but we helped each other find our own answers. So when I found an answer, I was able to find his answer. So I was able to then carry on the book. So yeah, he's completely an aspect of me. I mean, like this, I didn't even mean to write the first book. I had no idea of a second book, didn't even think of a second book or a third. It was only when, I'm guessing my life was in a particular place that I then heard his voice again. And I thought, right, now it's time to write the next one, because he's telling me. Because he goes to some really dark places, doesn't yeah. he? And he, he ends up in, well, it's not a borstal, but mm. the equivalent at yeah, like yeah. one stage, and he's, um, he's caught up with the gangs. Yeah. Is, it, is there a sense of kind of there but for the grace of God, that mm. that's a route I could have gone down, that could have been me? I think not as such in that my childhood wasn't as precarious as John's. It's more that the feelings he was going through when he was in these places were my feelings. So when he was in the prison, he was in the juvenile detention centre, like the ball stall, he was lonely and he felt we let everyone down. No, I felt like that. But I'm guessing that when I wrote it, dramatic licence or whatever, I constructed somehow a vision of John where he could put words to those feelings that I could never put words to. Yeah. And he needed to be in a place of loneliness and feeling like you'd let the whole world down to be able to find those words. Yeah. So. And something that I felt was a real parallel actually between the work that I try to do and, mm. and your writing is I think in my fiction I often try and take people into the life of someone who you might cross the street to avoid yeah yeah and show how it feels to be that person and I felt very much with John Sissons there was an element of that in what you were doing oh there really was I mean the well I, I wasn't conscious of writing I'm, I'm never really that conscious of writing when I'm writing um, so it comes from, a, I suppose, much more of an unconscious place. And I've always been... Oh, it's funny, because I'm, I'm a twin, and I'm the younger twin. 
and um, I suppose in my brother's shadow I felt like that whether that's been the truth or not probably doesn't matter that's how I saw it so the underdog that sort of side of life has always been something I've been drawn to and only ever done if you like working class jobs um, and I've met people that are incredible and yet like you say people would perhaps cross the street if they didn't know their story you know and it's uh, I felt a lot of the characters in the books I think I described one of them is just like he's sitting there inside just doing the best he can like the rest of us so I think yeah it all, it all comes from a very dark deep place yeah I mean there's a quote that I found really powerful in Abide With Me where you say because there's holes in this world see holes and the likes of Tomo and Keith and me and Kenny we just sort of fall through them we weren't never bad kids we just didn't have nothing to hold on to that's all that, that, for me, yeah. sort of seemed to sum up what you were doing with the it, book. It, it's funny, I just even hearing that gives me sort of chills a little bit because I don't know why I wrote any of those books or why I write at all. But when I hear that, I think that's why I write these books. Because I know that if I hadn't have written these books, they're books I would like to have read. And when some of the messages that I get from people that have read them are so emotional and I, when, I, when I teach adults to write books now I say the only reason I have is to inspire um, I see no other reason to write books and I, so yeah that's, that's hearing that it's like hearing an old friend talking it's, yeah something that's really impressive as well in, in your work is how you how you write the East London vernacular on the page. Yeah. I think what's really interesting about it is, um, and it, it reminded me of books like Irvin Welsh's Trainspotting mm, and also yeah. Graham Armstrong's The Young Team more recently. Yeah. Because what's different about what you do and what those books do is that if you read a sort of, um, sort of classic English novel where someone's speaking in, say, uh, what you might call Cockney, mm you'll see apostrophes for missing letters and yeah. things and all that. Yeah. You don't do that. No. You say so you miss off the G's on, on what we would call a standard English word yeah. because that's the way the characters say them. Yeah. But you don't have an apostrophe showing there's a G missing because it's not like you're writing for a standard English reader. You're yeah. writing, this is what this person... Yeah. And I think that's a really important political statement in a way. Yeah. You're not kind of taking standard English and sort of like you know, showing how it's being altered, you're mm. presenting a different kind of English. Yeah. How did you go about, stand, how did you go about getting that system right on the page? It, it's really, I suppose, what underneath all of it, the approach I've took to, to writing is, it just is what it is. So all of the characters, you look at them, you hear them, and there's no, there's no secrets. This is what you are. You take it or leave it. But when I first wrote the book, I don't know how, I can't remember how now, but um, a, an agent from New York read the first three chapters and wanted me to send the rest. And I had the apostrophes on oh. when I first wrote it, because I thought, that's what you do, you know. I had no education to speak of in terms of writing, but I thought, I knew that, I knew when you did that. And she said, the things you had at, there's loads of them. Okay, so like, when you're reading, you're drawn just to all of these little, sort of almost like raindrops, I suppose you could, mm. can see them as. And this is what made me realise she actually got what I was trying to do with the book. She said, look, people know there's a G missing, you know? You don't have to put an apostrophe to tell them. And I took them out and suddenly it was like a veil had been lifted and it was like a style that just revealed itself. 
and it was plain and it was unapologetic and I thought that's it Um, and when another publisher asked me to write a novella like commissioned me to write a novella um, I wrote it and without the apostrophes and he said there's no apostrophes (laughs) 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 Um, but by then I was a lot more confident and because he said he absolutely loved the story he said but could you put the apostrophes in and I sort of said no and it was one of those times when I, I sort of I never envisioned being a writer, so I've never had any pretensions of any sort. And I thought, no, I don't write like that. That's not how I write. So I said to him, look, I don't write like that. I don't have them in, so it's up to you what you want to do, but I don't want the apostrophes. He's a great bloke. And he said, well, all right then. And he published it anyway, because he loved the story. And that meant so much in terms of validation for me. It felt like I have got a voice in this writing world mm. and it's saying this is how I want it if you like it great if you don't that's all right as well yeah yeah, yeah. something else I really loved about your book is how you presented football in it now mm. I have to confess I'm not a football <laughs> fan and my heart did slightly sink when I think oh I've got to read the whole book <laughs> so on football uh, but actually it really drew me in I found it really mm. and I've always find that novels that can write about things that aren't your interest but really drench yeah. you into that that's a real strength that's a real mm. sort of testament to the writing and something you showed me about sport that I don't think I've ever really realised before is how it's kind of a focus for magical thinking in a way mm. for grown ups for, for playing so that kind of oh if I don't look at, if we don't mention it we might score yeah. we might kind of let's not jinx it yeah, that yeah. kind of and it's almost like the chance for grown ups maybe particularly for men because mm. it is quite male dominated world yeah. isn't it to be children again mm. to to sort of hold on to that magical child's I can make I can change the world if I just yeah. do this if I follow this in the right way oh definitely and it works the other way that if you get the work result your world has changed even for that just mm. one week yeah. the life is as the world is as it should be. I mean, for me, I love football. I mean, I'm not a West Ham. I know the, the book centres on a West Ham supporter, but I support Dagenham. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the emotion, well, the emotion comes from me as a Dagenham supporter, which is why it's so bleak, I would imagine, at times. <laughs> but for me, I've always seen football as a vehicle for men to show emotion, whether with each other or to express emotion. I mean, especially like if you look at, say, the East End culture, where it's... It's better now. I mean, when I, I, I was a counsellor in Dagenham, it's much better now where men will talk about emotion much more than they used to. But football has always been that vehicle where they could show emotion, mm. where they could cry, you know, where they could get really angry. So in the book, it's, to me, it's not the football that matters. It's the relationship between the father and the son mm. that football facilitates. Yeah. I think that's what I wanted to get through in the book was the sense of belonging. Mm. For someone that doesn't feel they belong anywhere, they've got this family where they can belong. Yeah, it's that sense of family and belonging and being able to express things, isn't it? Because that's another Mm. thing you do really powerfully is showing when people can't say, can't express things. There's so many scenes in the book where people can't Mm. tell each other how they're feeling. And that, that seems to be a real strength in your writing. I think that you can show the reader Mm. and the reader can sit there knowing but the other person in the scene can't access that. It would be wrong of me to say what I've always tried to do with writing because I've never been conscious of what I do with writing. But when I reread passages, I'm one of those people that sometimes I am not great in saying what I feel. 
So I'll just feel it and I'll feel it really deeply, but I won't put words to it. When you get two of those people in a room, it's very difficult. And so the male relationships in the book to me are really important because you've got the bravado of the football. And it's not all about football to me. I don't see, even see it as a football book. Mm. To me, it's a book about relationships and how, if you can't find the words, those feelings just stay there and they fester and they turn into other things. And uh, so through the books, it was my journey of finding the words, putting words to what I feel and I have felt. So to me, all three books are just my therapy. Mm. The fact that other people have enjoyed them to me as a bike it's not even oh, it's wrong to say it's not that important because it's amazing that some of the things people have said about them but it wasn't the point of me writing them i suppose is what i, what I mean by that yeah and you some of the stuff you showed so the gangs for example john gets gets caught up after when he's an adult he comes out of prison mm. um and he gets caught up in the gangs it's a world that a lot of people don't know very much about how yeah. did you access that so yeah, a lot of the gang stuff, I know people that have been in prison, but I've not been myself. So probably from popular culture, I would say the gang stuff. Without it being, obviously didn't want it all Danny Dyer. Yeah. You know, so to me it had to be real. Yeah. That whatever I wrote had to feel real. So, like I've never been in prison, but the loneliness had to feel real. Mm. So, not having experience of some of the things, I heard on the side of feelings. Mm. So it then become a bit easier to write then. Mm. Makes sense. No, that makes sense. I like that erring on the side of feelings. Mm. I think again, that's something that in my writing I try and try and do. I don't always manage it. I find my head gets in the way. It's the universal, I suppose. Yeah, 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 I think that's right. So obviously, you write a lot of short stories. You yeah. talked about your novels as being your therapy. Mm. How is short story writing different for you from the novels? It's, it's sort of not. It's all the same, same stuff, and all the short stories come from that place of just literally making it up as I'm going along. And I find it's, it's the, the not tampering too much with what first comes out mm. is what gives them their voice and their meaning. Mm. You've talked before to me about this idea of opening a curtain yeah. and looking out. Can you, can you, because I found that a really powerful yeah. way that you, you, I think it's something you tell your students. Yeah, yes. I mean, and can it's like, yeah. I mean, because I was never, had no education to speak of regarding English. I would never talk to her, write stories, how to write books, anything at all. So I would just write in whatever way come to me. And I've always loved reading. And there's a, a Walt Whitman poem where he talks about looking through an interstice, which I used to look up at the time, I had no idea what it meant. And it's like just a crack in a window. And he, the, the whole poem is a block through that. And the idea that when we go through life, we just see slices of life. We see minutes, seconds. And yet in those moments can be so much. So when I teach people to, to write stories, now I teach adults to write stories, I say, don't go for the beginning, middle, and that will, just that little glimpse. But if you can put meaning into that little glimpse, that's worth 100 pages, you know? So, so yeah, the stuff I write, it can be anything from, a, I suppose my average is between 100 and 500 words wow. for a short story, so flash fiction. I read it somewhere about like, some of those powerful writing is just that thing of you get in quick and you get out quick. Mm. So whether that's a scene in a book or a book in itself, 
one of the things I, t I teach my students is when you've written a short story, take out the first line or two lines, take out the last two lines and see what you've got because you'll almost always have a better beginning mm. and a better end. And the same with a book. Look at the first chapter. Does it really need to be there? Yeah. You know, the last chapter. How far are you winding down? So that idea of just giving what needs to be given. So just say what needs to be said. Mm. Why say any more? You know, so it's, it's quite intense in that way. Yeah. You've um, also, another thing that we have in common is we both blog. Yeah. And um, yeah. you, on your blog, have been doing a series, Scenes from a London Bench, mm. which really, it's a really fascinating series. Can you tell me, tell me a bit more about yeah, okay. that? Yeah, okay. what, what prompted it was, I was I've been teaching children in schools in East London the last few months how to write stories. And one uh, school was in Leightonstone, and I was going for my lunch, just sitting in the bench down um, Church Road in Leightonstone, where the station is at the bottom. And I just, I forgot to, forgot to bring a book with me. So probably that's what sparked it. Because I thought, if I've not got a book, what am I going to do? I had nothing to write on, because that was all left in, I left all that in the school. So I was just watching, and it was almost like, a film playing out. Suddenly I was taking notice of stuff that probably has, has happened all the time around me that I never take notice of. So there's so much and I, I just, when I got back to the school, I've, I noted loads of things down. Went back and wrote it down and I, I really believe that things appear in my life at the moment to teach me about myself. So whether that's people appear in my life at the right time, situations, opportunities. And I'm thinking, so on the, tr way, on the train on the way back, I'm thinking, why was all this happening today to me? Why did that man walk past and say those things to me? Why did that woman in a pushchair walk past me? Why was that man across the road doing that? It was almost like a play just for me. So when I wrote it up, I wrote up what, was, what happened. And I think I imbued it with a bit of sort of philosophical talk as well and the response from people was amazing that you know so I, I'd done another one I was waiting to post something in the post office in Romford and I thought that's vaguely London perhaps I'll do something like that so <laughs> wrote that and that's a Liverpool Street station done another one so yeah it, to realise that all around me are clues to who I am and I just don't look mm. so yeah they've, they've been and I don't write non-fiction, so, and I'm really enjoying it. Fantastic. And you've also recently started a project to read a Shakespeare play a week. <laughs> yeah. Can you tell me what, what's behind that and how are you finding it? Yeah. Again, at school, I was in the bottom class of English at school, all through, all through school. I didn't do, I'd done an English literature degree when I was, I think, 40, 41. Shakespeare had always been a name. I'd never read any at all. But the more, I mean, I'm obsessed with reading, always have been, but perhaps the last 10 years or so I've been much more obsessed with like the, the classics, if you like, because I never read them. And so many of them had quotes from Shakespeare, like Moby Dick, so many quotes from Shakespeare. And I thought, I've got to start reading that. Myself and my wife was in a second-hand bookshop in um, Felixstowe. They've got two second-hand bookshops in Felixstowe that are incredible. And there was this complete set of Shakespeare on the floor. And... I'm not great at buying things for myself. Um, we've never really had the money to do, to sort of splash it on anything at all. I saw this set of Shakespeare, and it was all of them, complete set, 16 volumes, I think it was, or 12 volumes, all the sonnets, 
and it was 40 quid. To me, I thought, oh, that's, that's 40 quid. That's, that's such a lot of money. So my wife said, do you want to? I said, yeah, this. And we went, we left. And as we were going, we were sort of halfway down the road. And my wife said, look, just, just get them. So I went back and just bought them. Um, and they sat on my shelf for probably a year. And then I thought, I need to start reading. So I thought one a week, see how that goes. And the experience, I sort of started with Hamlet. I'd read Macbeth before. That's right, I'd read Macbeth before, just a one-off. So Hamlet, then I, I read um, King Lear. And what amazed me was almost the story didn't matter. The story seemed universal. It was the, the use of words. The language was just almost from another planet. I'm guessing everyone's got their own experience of Shakespeare in terms of what they get from it. For me, it was like, where did he come from? You know, how can, how can someone just write this stuff? And like the, the King Lear with a portrayal of madness, which, look, reading it again, it, it seems more akin to Alzheimer's than anything else. And I watched the, uh, the Anthony Hopkins film version after I read it, which is one of the most amazing films I've ever seen in my whole life. And I'd have to say, I think I preferred King Lear to Hamlet. But I'm reading Much Ado About Nothing this week. Oh, a bit of a change. Yeah, and um, I imagine it was hilarious in 15 <laughs> whatever, but I'm not falling on the floor at the moment. But yeah, I'm sure it will, yeah. So, I, But I'm just looking forward to just going through the rest and thinking. There's a line in that play that I always think of where I think it's Beatrice says, not till a hot January, and I'm like, well, we're not far off now, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, I must say, we've... Um, is it Beatrice and Benedict? Mm. It's really funny. Yeah. Just there. And it, it's really funny. It reminds me of me and my wife. Mm. We, we worked in the same place. And we were sort of like that. Um, Sparring. Yeah. 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 Without realising anything yeah. at all. But, um, but yeah. So, yeah. I think you can only have so many overhearing conversations. Mm. People pretending to, pretending to be other people. Mm. But then realising soap operas nowadays have used all of this. Shakespeare created EastEnders, yeah. you know, it's, which is awful to think of. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I'm absolutely loving it. Fantastic. Absolutely loving it. And uh, what would you like to achieve with your writing? Are there any goals left that you'd like to achieve? My life has become more teaching writing now than actual writing. And, I, and a lot of people ask me, when's the next book? And I think I've So I don't see myself as a writer. My world is writing. Um, if you like. And I love the teaching, but I also know that whatever books or stories I need to write, there'll be the right time for them to be written. But as far as ambitions, just the, the fact that people get anything from anything I've written, that's as good as it gets for me. That was Ian Ayres in conversation with Anne Morgan. You can find out more about Ian on his website at ianayris.org. And that concludes episode 414, which was recorded and produced by Anne Morgan. Coming up in episode 415, Polly Morland speaks with Carolyn Sanderson about filmmaking leading to vocational nonfiction, blending ideas for different disciplines, and telling human stories. We hope you'll join us. You've been listening to Writers Aloud podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. To subscribe to podcasts and to find out more about the work of the RLF, please visit our website at www.rlf.org.
www.ghostbusinesscoach.org.uk Thanks for listening.